Socrates once said that the way to gain a good reputation is to endeavor to be what you desire to appear. Does that make sense? Did you catch that? Let me say that again. He says the way to gain a good reputation is to endeavor to be what you desire to appear. Isn't that great advice? I think about that for a minute. If you want to have a good reputation, you need to do the things that earn you a good reputation. That's what he's saying. That's really the bottom line. I mean, think about it. We all have friends. We all have acquaintances who have different reputations in our lives, don't we? You all know someone. You all have people maybe in your circle of friends or at work who have varying degrees of reputation. There are some people in your lives who you just know that you can count on. You just know that you can count on this guy. He's going to be there when you need him. If they tell you they're going to do something, they're going to do it. Do you know anybody like that? Do you know anybody who, if he says to you, I'm going to be here at one o'clock, you can be sure that at one o'clock he's going to be here. He's going to do what he says he's going to do. If he tells you he's going to do something, you know that it's going to get done. And you know that if there's something important going on and they commit to it, it's as good as done. Do you know that guy? Do you have that guy in your lives? I bet you do. But I also bet you have people in your lives who just aren't very reliable, don't you? You know that you can't count on them to do what they say. If they commit to doing something, in the back of your mind, you always have that fear that you're going to end up doing it yourself, don't you? You always have that fear that it's going to be undone, that you're going to be disappointed at the end of the day. Why? Because the guy has earned a reputation as someone that you can't count on. Now, I just want you to imagine with me for a few minutes. Let's just imagine that you're working for a company. Your company is doing very well. Business is booming, and you need to hire someone. Well, friend one and friend two both need jobs. Which friend are you going to recommend? Think about it. Which one of your friends would you recommend? Well, you're probably going to recommend the friend who has the reputation of being reliable, aren't you? You're going to recommend the one that you know that you can count on. Friends, listen, the truth of the matter is that when something important comes up, the opportunities tend to go to people with good reputations. Did you know that? It's just true. The opportunities always seem to go to the people who have the better reputations before they go to people with questionable reputations. I recently heard of an employee at a company who did not have a great reputation as someone who was reliable and dependable, and that employee was unhappy with the way that their manager was conducting business in a particular matter. The manager had been with the company for more than 20 years and had experienced a nice level of success and was well regarded by company leadership. But in this particular case, the manager made a decision that did not seem to sit well with the employee. It did not work out to the employee's liking. So frustrated with the manager's decision, the employee decided that he was going to go to the manager's supervisor. And when he did that, he made some disparaging remarks about the manager's character. How do you think that conversation went? It didn't go as well as the employee had hoped. The employee was told this manager has a 20-year history of making good decisions. You've been with the company for about three years, and in that time you've earned a reputation as someone that can't be counted on. That employee is no longer with that company, but I want you to think about it. In any given circumstance, you generally give the advantage to the person who has a more solid reputation, don't you? You just do. 
You see, a good reputation is priceless. It's absolutely priceless, and it's very, very difficult to come by. Did you know that? A good reputation is very difficult to come by. It's something that you want working to your advantage. You want a good reputation. Young people, hear me when I say this to you. I would encourage you to begin right now to construct a good reputation upon which you can build your careers and your relationships. Remember the advice of Socrates, be what you desire to appear. Be what you want people to think of you. Let me just ask, when people talk about you, when you're not around, what do you want them to say about you? What is it you'd like them to say? Do you want your employer to say, this guy is very reliable. This guy is a great worker. And if I could recommend only one person for promotion, it would be that guy right there. Is that what you want your employer to say about you? If that's what you want, then don't call in sick to go hang out with your buddies. If that's what you want, then get to work on time and be the hardest worker in your place of employment. If that's what you want, then take pride and find fulfillment in doing a great job at work. If that's what you want, then don't be a complainer. If that's what you want, always do more than you're asked to do. It's that simple, isn't it? Work is under the Lord. Work is under the Lord, and you're going to earn the reputation of being a great worker. Do you want your friends to say, she's the most reliable and best friend that I could ever have? Is that what you want your friends to say about you? If that's the reputation you want, then you never violate or betray a friend's confidence, do you? If that's the reputation you want, you never tell things that are spoken to you in secret. If that's the reputation that you want, then you always love and you always support and you always lift up your friend no matter what mistake they've made, no matter what error they find themselves in, no matter what they're going through, you always pick them up and you always lift them up. And if you do that, then what your friends are going to say is, this is the best friend I've ever had. You have to be the thing that you want people to think of you. Do you want people to say things like, you can't count on that guy at all. You want people to say things about you like, I wouldn't trust that guy to run my lemonade stand. If that's what you want, then do the things that earn you that reputation. Do you want to know what they sound like? Sleep all day. Go ahead and just sleep all day. Show up late to absolutely everything. Never do what you say you're going to do. Don't follow through with the things that you begin. Be irresponsible. Be selfish. And that is what people are going to say of you. Do you know that? Listen, friends, don't be surprised by that. People never have a reputation given to them. Did you hear that? You never have a reputation that is just given to you. Do you know how you get a reputation? You earn it. Nobody gives you a reputation. You earn the reputation that you have through consistent action, whether it's good or bad. That's what you've done. You've earned it. But I want you to know that a good reputation is incredibly valuable. It's incredibly valuable, and it takes a very long time to come by. And once you've gotten there, once you've earned a good reputation, do you know it can be gone in a moment? Did you know that? It was Benjamin Franklin who said, of course, many years ago, it takes many good deeds to build a reputation. It only takes one bad deed to lose it. A more contemporary version of that quote is, it takes 20 years to build a good reputation and five minutes to ruin it. If you think about that, you'll do different things. That's what Warren Buffett said. You see, the reputation defines the man. Reputation defines the man. So once you've earned it, be careful to protect it, right? 
Once you've earned a good reputation, you must be careful to protect it. In fact, in the American legal system, a false statement which harms someone's reputation is a crime. Did you know that? It's called defamation of character. And it can take a couple different forms. I want to explain it to you. There's libel, which is written false statements about someone. And then there is slander, which is spoken false statements about someone. Both of them are very, very serious offenses. You can be sued for a great deal of dollar value over that because they harm the very valuable and difficult to attain prize of a good reputation. Can I just tell you that that happens all the time? Can I tell you that people write libelous things all the time? Can I tell you that people say slanderous things all the time? In fact, I would bet that if you were to pursue every false reputation-damaging statement that was made over Facebook in the last week, the courts would be tied up for years. Don't you think? If you were to pursue every reputation-damaging tweet that was tweeted out last week, you'd probably never get to court again. Well, as you know, the book of James presents a series of tests which we have to use to help us determine the genuineness of our faith. And so today, our passage deals with this concept of defamation, specifically identified by James in chapter 4 and verses 11 and 12 as slander. So I'm going to take you now to James chapter 4, and we're going to begin in verse 11. And this morning, we're going to deal with verses 11 and 12. And this is what James says in verse 11. He says, brothers, do not slander one another. And we're just going to stop right there. I want to take a moment to help you understand this word slander. Slander. So I want to explore this word a little bit if I could. It's the Greek verb katalaleo, easy for me to say, katalaleo. And if we were to parse it, we would say that it is present active imperative. Now, most of you by now know that it's a command of ongoing action when we say present active imperative. So we could think of it as a pattern of life. It would sound like this. Do not be slandering one another. Do you see? Present active imperative. Do not be slandering one another. So what does it mean to slander? Think about that. It's the same thing that it means in our legal system. It's the same thing that it means in our court system. So James is saying, don't go around saying things about people which you do not know to be true or that you know to be untrue. Did you hear that? Listen, James says, don't go around saying things about people which you do not know to be true and do not go around saying things about people that you know to be untrue and damage that person's reputation by doing it. It's a terrible sin. It's malicious and it destroys people. But the word katalaleo is really interesting to me. It's a compound word, and the root is the verb laleo, which means to talk. So very quickly, I want to introduce you, if I may, to two words which are often translated in the New Testament as talk or say. One of them we're all really familiar with. It's the word lego, and the noun form of it is logos. You've heard the word logos, haven't you? In the beginning was the word. That's logos. And that's where we get our word logic. Now, This verb, lego, has implicit in its use the idea of logic or of thought, okay? Hang on to that. So if we use the verb lego, we are implying that there is logic or thought behind it. It presupposes a form of logic. Now, on the other hand, this verb laleo is just a little bit different. How many of you have ever heard of an onomatopoeia? You have? Awesome. I was sure you guys were going to be throwing stuff at me when I said the word onomatopoeia. 
Right. For those of you who don't know what an onomatopoeia is, it's a word that is formed from the sound that's associated with what it's named for. Does that make sense? A word that is formed from the sound that it's associated with. For example, if you have a toddler, and our kids used to love to do this when they were little, and they like to take out pots and pans out of the cabinet, and they hit them together, what do we call that? The toddler is banging pots and pans, right? Why do we call it banging? Because that's the sound that it makes when he hits them together. Bang, bang, bang. That's an onomatopoeia. So it's a word that means what it sounds like. Does that make sense? Let me give you another example. You put on your coat and the very first thing you do is you fasten it. If it doesn't have buttons and it doesn't have snaps, what is it that you do? How do you fasten it? Say it. You zip it, don't you? Do you see, understand the word zip is an onomatopoeia? Why? Because when you zip it, what does it say? It says zip, right? That's an onomatopoeia. That's how it works. How about a bird? What do birds do? Birds chirp. That's an onomatopoeia. They go around saying chirp, 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 chirp. That's what it means. Now, do you know what verb the Greeks used to describe the noise that birds make? Laleo, laleo. Other animals were also described with that same word, but what does a bird say? The Greeks were saying, the birds would just say, la, 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 la. They're just chirping, they're la, la, la. That's the root of this Greek word, which means to slander. And I want you to know that's how it appears in this verse. Now, hang with me. The other part of this verb is the word kata, which means against or down. Okay? So if we take it and we put it all together, what is it that the slanderer does? Well, listen, he goes around shooting his mouth off against people, talking them down, saying, la 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 la. You see? He's going around behind everyone's back, just la 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 la, shooting his mouth off and condemning the guy. And why is it? It's really, it was really interesting to me to find out that this verb was also translated as backbiting. Why do you think it is that it was translated as backbiting? Because that's exactly what the slanderer likes to do. He likes to conduct his evil business when you're not looking, doesn't he? He likes to wait until your back is turned and then he hits you with his damaging remark so that you have zero ability to defend yourselves. Interestingly, when the employee from earlier went to the manager's supervisor to complain, who do you think was the last person to know about it? It was the manager. Why? Because the employee was backbiting. What did the employee do? The employee went around him. The employee waited until the manager's back was turned, and then he ran to that manager's supervisor, and he hit him with some untrue statements so that the manager was unable to defend himself. Isn't that the way it is? It's hard for me to do backbiting when you're standing in my face. But i got no problem hitting you when you turn your back. That's the way of the world, friends. The world has fallen. And that's how it works. Now, going back to the first part of James 4.11, this is what it says. Brothers, do not be slandering one another. Remember, present active imperative. Do not be slandering one another. And when he says brothers, I want you to know that he's not talking about the people who you meet in the workplace in this fallen world. He is speaking about believers. What believer would go around saying la 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 behind someone's back and cutting them down when they're not looking, biting them in the back? He says, brothers, do not slander other brothers. That's not how it works. You don't assassinate the reputation of your brothers. You don't assassinate the reputation of other believers by waiting for them to turn their backs and then saying things that are either unfounded or completely untrue altogether. That's not how brothers and sisters treat one another. 
your family. The people in this room are family. Family protects one another. Family lifts one another up. Family does not say damaging things about other family members that brings them to dishonor. Family does not say other things that brings to them damage to their reputation. I have uh, two brothers and I have a sister. And as you know, I was blessed to go to Missouri uh, over the last week to spend some time with them and to spend some time with my parents. But Growing up, we were obviously very, very typical children. I mean, we would, guys, you know how it is, right? I mean, you're fighting and you're smacking each other around. Isn't that how it happens? You're pushing each other and you're, you're giving each other wedgies and noogies and everything else. And you're mean to one another. And that's how we were. Every time my family gets together, my older brother, of course, he was way bigger than me. And he likes to talk about how I waited until they turned his back and we were cutting wood for a wood-burning stove. And I took a piece of wood and threw it at him and hit him in the back of the head. He swears it was on purpose, and of course I, I deny it, but just between you and me, I totally did it on purpose. <laughs> but that's what brothers and sisters sometimes do. But as we began to mature, we became close friends. And I can honestly say that at different points in my life, each of my siblings individually were at some time my closest friends. And today, aside from my wife and, and my own kids, my brothers and my sister are still the closest people to me. And over the years, I've had a lot of friends that I might have called best friends or I I might have called my closest friends, but I don't know where any of them are right now. Lost track of them. I've had army buddies. You've probably had army buddies. You've probably had college roommates. Maybe you've had co-workers, boyfriends, girlfriends. I want you to hear me say this. They all come and go. They all come and go. And they all go, but my brothers and my sister are still in my life after 51 years. Scott's 51. Yeah. Yeah. They've lived with me all my life. And they've lived with me long enough to see all my flaws and all my imperfections. And you know what? My brothers love me in spite of them. My sister loves me in spite of my all my imperfections. They've been there to, to pick me up and to be a support to me during difficult times. When I've struggled financially, even though they haven't had anything, they have given everything that they could to help me. If I've moved, my brothers were there to help me carry the refrigerator. And you know, the the couch, you know the one with the fold-out bed that everybody hates? They were there for that too. And I can tell you this. Listen closely. If anyone in this world ever attacks my character, if anyone in this world ever attacks my reputation, it won't be my brothers, and it won't be my sister. Isn't that something? I just know that that's true. Listen closely, friends. The only people who slander and destroy the hard-earned reputation of a family member are people who don't belong to the family. If you do that to me, my brothers and my sister are going to unite around me. And if people do that to you, Your brothers and your sisters should unite around you. Young people, as you leave home, you're going to find out that many people are going to come and go through your lives. I want you to hear this, okay? It's very important. Many people are going to be coming and going through your lives over the next several years. There's just this ebb and flow in the intensity of relationships and friendships that you're going to have with other people. But I want you to know that your family, your brothers and your sisters will always be your family. Don't attack them. Don't damage them. Protect them no matter what it costs you. And James says, 
It's the exact same way in the church. That's what he's saying. Brothers and sisters, do not be slandering one another. Do not be slandering one another. Remember, now James wants us to test ourselves to see if our faith is genuine. He says, brothers and sisters, do not go around slandering one another. So if you are someone who goes around saying things about others in your church family, you have a reason to ask yourself if you really are a member of the family at all. Remember, that's James' point in the book of James. He wants you to test yourselves and see if your faith is real. And he's saying, look, if you're going around slandering your family members, if you're going around slandering the people in your church, then you need to ask yourselves if you really belong in the family at all because that's not how it works in the family. So if you go around saying things that are unfounded, if you go around saying things that are untrue about other believers, you may not be a genuine believer at all. And let me explain to you why that becomes a question. Let's take a look at the second part of verse 11. It says this, Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. There's another concept that's closely connected to slandering or speaking against a brother, and it's this work of judging. It's this work of judgment. And this is such an important piece in understanding why your faith may not be genuine if you are in the habit of going around and speaking against your brothers and sisters like that. Listen, James's logic here is fantastic, so I want you to, I want you to plug in and follow through this. First of all, listen, when you speak against your brother or sister, you are making an assessment. You are making the assessment or the evaluation that they are in violation of some standard, aren't you? Follow along with me here. Maybe you're saying that they're in violation of a spiritual standard. Maybe you're saying they're in violation of a biblical standard or some holy standard. But you are certainly suggesting that they are falling short of a standard that you yourselves are completely fulfilling. Either way, you're making yourself the standard bearer. And as I thought about that, I wondered... What is the motive that drives us to do that? And I believe that at the very root of this is one thing. Do you know what that is? It's pride. When I make judgments of others, I make myself look better or I make myself feel better because I'm inflating my ego by saying, well, I may be a pretty crummy dude, but at least I'm not that guy. Right? At least I'm not that guy. I'm better than that. And that's really what it is when we judge people. The Bible is filled, friends, with instruction that you have no business doing that at all. And you especially have no business doing that against people in your church family. Stay away from that. One of the most powerful pieces of instruction in Scripture regarding judging one another is found in the book of Matthew. You'll remember, of course, that Jesus himself said, do not judge in Matthew 7 verse 1. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Now listen, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged and with the measure you use, so it will be measured to you. So as you relentlessly, as you maliciously make slanderous statements about your brother, friends, understand that you are establishing the standard by which you yourselves will be judged when God judges you. Think about that. If you without grace, if you without mercy make statements and judgment condemning your brother or sister in the church body, you can be sure that God will use that same standard to make judgments of you. 
Isn't that frightening? The compassionate heart will receive compassion. The merciful heart will receive mercy. But the ruthless heart will be judged ruthlessly. But it's really interesting to me how James finishes verse 11. Take a look. This is what he says. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but you're sitting in judgment over it. Now, I think this can sometimes be a little bit confusing, so I want to kind of help untangle it for you a little bit. I mean, after all, how in the world am I judging God's law by talking trash about someone in the church? How in the world am I judging God's law by slandering someone in the church? I mean, maybe I'm cruel, maybe I'm not nice, but I'm certainly not judging the law because I'm not foolish enough to ever do that, am I? Well, in Matthew 22, you'll remember there was a lawyer who had in mind to test Jesus, and I I just love this. And so he approached Jesus and he said, you know, he asked him, he says, hey, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And the response of Jesus is really important to us here as we establish this. So I want to take you to verse 37, Matthew 22, and follow along with me. And he said, that being Jesus, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now listen, on these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophets. Did you know that you could take the Old Testament law, you could take the Old Testament prophets, you could take all the Old Testament writings and you could reduce them to one thing. Do you know what that one thing is? It's love. The law and the prophets are given to us to help us to understand how to love. That's the point. I want you to think about this for a minute. First, the law tells you how to love God, doesn't it? The law tells you how to love and how to worship God. I mean, think about it in terms of the, of the Ten Commandments for a moment, if you, could, if you could do that. If you truly love God, are you going to put other gods before Him? You're not going to do that, are you? If you truly love God, are you going to bow down to idols? If you truly love God, are you going to use His name in vain or for no reason at all? No, of course you're not. You're going to do the things that please Him. You're going to do the things that bring honor to Him. You're going to do things that bring glory to Him if you love Him, right? Now I want you to consider for a minute how the law sums up the love of others. We'll just stick with the Ten Commandments if that's okay with you. Kids, if you love your parents, are you going to dishonor them? Kids, if you love your parents, are you going to rebel against them? Kids, if you love your parents, are you going to disobey them? And the answer is no. Friends, hear me. If you love your neighbor, are you going to steal from him? If you love your neighbor, are you going to kill him? Are you going to sleep with his wife? Of course not. If you love him, you are going to do the things that build him up. And do you know what else you're not going to do if you love your neighbor? You're not going to go around saying things about him that are not true are you? If you love him, you're not going to go around doing those things. You're not going to go around saying things that damage his reputation. So friends, hear me, when you do any of those things, you violate the law of God, don't you? We know that. When you do any of those things, you violate the the law of God. When you slander your brother, when you pass judgment on him, listen to me, you are not only cruel, you are not only not nice, but what you're doing is you are committing the sin of not loving. 
Follow closely now. When you do that, when you commit that sin of not loving, you declare that this man is not deserving of the protection offered by God's law of love. More importantly, you say that your law of judgment on this individual supersedes God's law of love. Can you see that? You say that God's command for you to love your brother is not as important as your need to gain whatever satisfaction you're able to get from damaging your brother's reputation. God's command for you to love is not as important to you as that. So not only have you violated God's law by not loving, you have condemned God's law by saying that it is not as perfect as your own law. Did you follow that? Friends, this is very very dangerous ground. Let me show you why, if I may. I'm going to take you now to verse 12. Listen to this. Follow along with me. It says, There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. Sometimes when we translate uh, from the original Greek language to, to English, there are some subtleties and some nuances that we miss. And verse 12 is a good example of that. Let me show you what I mean. The sentence structure here of verse 12 in the Greek language is structured so that the word one is in what we call the emphatic position. So James is really driving an emphasis on the word one. He's putting a very strong emphasis on it. The original language says it like this. It says, one there is who is lawgiver and judge. Did you catch that? One there is who is lawgiver and judge. Why is that important? It's important, friends, listen, there is only one who gives the law, not two. That's the point James is making. There is only one who gives the law, not two. There is only one who judges. There are not two. Who is that? Who is the one who gives the law? Who is the one that judges? Well, it's God, of course, isn't it? It is God who gives the law. It is God who judges. The holy standard of God's law had only one author. It did not have two. God's judgment bench does not have room for two to sit on it. It only has room for one to judge. If you are the lawgiver, if you are the judge, then guess who is not? There's only room for one. Do you follow that? If you are the one who judges, then God is not. If you are the one who gives the law, then God is not. And you, my friend, at that point have usurped the position of God. And you are saying, I am greater than God. Friends, it is a very dangerous thing to set yourself up in competition with God. Are you aware of that? It's a very, very dangerous thing for you to assert yourself above God. And in effect, when you put yourself in the place of slanderer, when you put yourself in the place of judge, what you're saying is, I will set my throne higher than God's, aren't you? What you're saying is, I will be like God, won't you? I will set my throne higher than God's. I will be like God. Did you know that happened once before? Did you know that there was one who said that long ago? 
There was another who aspired to be lawgiver. There was another who aspired to be judge. And Isaiah 14 tells us about it. And he says this in verse 13. He says, I will ascend to heaven. I will ascend above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Do you know who that was? That was Satan. I found it interesting as I was studying to find that one of the most commonly used words for Satan in the New Testament is diabolos. Do you know what it means? It means slanderer. It means backbiter. Friends, Satan is the slanderer. He is the slanderer. Jesus said in John 8, 44, that when he lies, he speaks his native tongue. Do you remember that? He went on in that passage to tell the Pharisees that Satan was their father because they lie. And because they slander. Do you see why this is such a serious test for you? Do you see why this is so important to James? Listen, if you as a pattern of life are a slanderer, you give evidence that Satan is your father and that you're not saved at all. James wants you to understand that the sin of slander is a very important, a very serious matter. It's a bold and courageous, it's a bold and, let me say, dangerous move to set yourselves up as greater than the law and the judgment of God. It is to make yourself greater than God. Are you able to save and destroy? Are you? God is. Take a look at the last part of verse 12. James says, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Are you the lawgiver? Are you? Are you the judge? Is that who you are? God is able to save. God is able to destroy. Are you? Listen, do you know what he's saying here? Who do you think you are? What gives you the right? Are you God? Then why do you, a sinner, Try to sit in God's seat and judge another sinner. Why do you do that? Listen, are you the one who gave the law? Are you the one who is powerful to judge? Stop it. Humble yourself, James is saying. Humble yourselves before the Lord and get control of your mouths. That's James's message. As I was preparing this message for today, I spent some time attempting to gain a proper understanding of slander. And I know that you remember how we defined it. We said that it's a false spoken statement which harms someone's reputation. And uh, (laughs) I'm sure that your minds aren't as depraved as mine, but the very first thing that came to my mind when I heard that was, well, it's not slander if it's true, right? It's a false statement. What I said was true. I want you to make sure that you understand something. Gossip is a very, very close cousin to slander. And the fact that something is true does not necessarily give you license to shout it out from the rooftop. Yet here I was, writing my sermon, looking for ways to get around the fact that my tongue is destructive. Looking for ways to get around the fact that I need to get my tongue under control. Think for a moment about the power of your tongues, friends. Do you remember when we said this? Consider what a huge fire a small spark kindles. Think about your tongue. Think about your speech. Do you remember what I said about the window to your soul? Your mouths are the window to your soul, not your eyes. Think about your speech. 
If you have maliciously spoken evil of someone unfairly, if you have maliciously spoken evil of someone without cause, if you have spoken lies or words of hatred, if you have been backbiting, if you have been gossiping, now is the time for you to confess that. It has no place in our family. Did you hear me? It has no place in our family. So let's be honest this morning. We've all sinned. And I'm not saying that you're going to hell if you've slandered people. But I'm saying if it's a pattern of life, you have reason to worry. We've all sinned in the things that we say, haven't we? We've all slipped up with our tongues. Remember what James said in chapter 3? He said if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's what? He's a perfect man. I'm not a perfect man. I stumble in what I say all the time. And if you do too, I would encourage you to join me this morning in making that confession. Father, I thank You for Your mercy. And I thank You for Your grace. We come to You again this morning, God, needing to confess the sins of our tongue. I would ask God that You would empower us to be who we claim to be. Help us to control our tongues. Help us, God, to never say anything to offend another family member. I ask God that You would humble us, that we would never presume to take Your seat as lawgiver and judge, but rather, I ask that You would help us to humbly and graciously speak to one another and to forgive anyone who has spoken a harsh word to harm our own reputations. I pray that You would help us to support one another and to lift one another up and to not make judgments about actions, to not make judgments about motives, not make judgments about beliefs, but help us to humbly hear and to apply your instruction. I pray, God, that you would give us the strength to do what we've heard of the word this morning and to not just hear it. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.